Father God, uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, your spirit will come, that you will take this big fat mouth of mine and make it do your work instead of my own or the evil ones. Holy Spirit, take over. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, our words are powerful. We started this last week talking about how powerful our words are. Are and, and we talked about this so much, right, as kids. The six and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we found out pretty quickly as kids that that was a lie, that words hurt bad, that hurt. Uh, sometimes you're like, I would rather have a broken arm because our words, they, they have power. They can, they can beat down or they can lift up. We can heal or we can wound. We can say the right words at the right time in the right situation to the right person that will encourage them and grow them, or we can say exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time and tear someone to pieces. Our words that come out of our big fat mouths, mine included, are so powerful. Now, last week, we began this series by talking about complaining. And uh, Paul writes in Philippians 2.14, one of the verses that I used last week was 2.14 says, do everything without complaining and arguing. Now, I don't know how often you read the Bible, but I assume since you guys are such good Christians and you're, you're perfectionists that it's at least seven times a day, right? No? Okay, so seven times a day you open your Bible. Here's what I love about reading scripture sometimes. I like it whenever it doesn't really mix any punches. Like it's just, I can't argue with that. I can't argue with it. It says do everything, which covers about everything, without complaining or arguing. And that's what we talked about and the importance of not complaining because when we constantly live this complaining lifestyle. It's an expression of self-centeredness. And as followers of Christ, it is important that we remind ourselves that Jesus is the center of my story, not me. That I am about Christ being glorified and I am about Christ being number one. So we are as followers of Christ, if you are a Christian, we are to be the kind of people who abandon complaining and arguing and discontentment in favor of promoting unity. It is all through the New Testament. But here's what I want to point out. That same verse that begins with, do everything without complaining and arguing, ends with, so that no one can criticize you. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that no one can criticize you. Meaning that when we avoid complaining and arguing and grumbling and meaningless disputes, we are seen as blameless and innocent and pure and faultless children of God by the blood of Christ to the point that no one can find good reason to criticize us. Does wonders for the health of a church, does wonders for the health of a family and the health of your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But I don't know what life has looked like for you, but for me, um, criticism has been difficult. Because just like we all love to complain, we all love to criticize 
each other. Just way too much. I remember in college, um, I went to a Christian college. Everybody was, everybody was pretty perfect, right? Like, we're all good kids. No, we were awesome. But I had these really great Christian friends that criticized me for things I didn't understand why I needed to be criticized for. Like, for example, I, I, um, one of the biggest criticisms is driving. I mean, do you guys criticize people for their driving? Like, I, I mean, I get the whole, like, well, I'm in the car and I'm trusting you with my life thing. So I have a right to tell you to stop at the stop sign. But I, I was one of the few kids that had a car in my freshman and sophomore year of college. And I, I dreaded the, the days whenever I would take certain friends for rides in the car because I was constantly being criticized about my driving. And it, and it, had, it became... Came, come to the point now, here I am, that was, I graduated in 2007, so we're talking over 10 years ago. And the things that they said to me, still to this day, and, and I don't like this at all, but still to this day, if I'm out driving my car and something kind of weird happens, or like I, maybe I make a mistake, and I hear in my head the criticisms from 10 years ago from those friends because I want to focus on the positive things. I want to see the good things. But the criticisms, they stick with me. I carry them around. I want to get rid of them. But, you know, we, you know, we, I, could, I could have a, a great friendship with somebody for, you know, we could be great friends and everything positive, positive, positive. But you hear one negative thing, one criticism, you can't get it out of your head. Like, I'm never good enough for this person. It's all negative. But today I want to talk to you about my big fat mouth and the topic of criticism. And, and I want to say this up front too. When I talk about criticism, I'm not talking about constructive feedback that we give people when we care about them because we want them to get better. Uh, what I'm talking about is criticism that is kind of like unkind nitpicking or this uninformed cruel criticism that often goes on. And, and it's a problem called criticism. Now, I know that some of you are, are, some of you are probably sitting in your seats and you're, you're thinking and you're smiling. You're like, dear God, thank you so much my spouse came today. Right? Like, I am so glad he's here. He needs to hear this. I'm, and, and I can't wait till they post this on, online. I am sending that link to my, to my boss and, and my father. I, I just got to get, you know what I'm thinking? But here's what I want to remind you. Okay, so the name of this series is my big fat mouth, not their big fat mouth, okay? It's so easy for us to, to cast this, anything like this on other people, but this is about us. This is introspective because the problem of criticism is really easy to see in other people, but it's really difficult to see that in the mirror as we look at ourselves. So we hate when other people criticize us, but we often don't realize how often we are criticizing other people because we feel justified in our criticism. We feel justified in this. Because like, well, if you weren't so weird, right? Or like if you wouldn't dress like that, if you wouldn't spend your money in such unwise ways, I wouldn't have to criticize you about spending your money in such unwise ways. Because after all, right, like, like we know what's best for their life. Like, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11 says that, that God has a wonderful plan for your life. 
You know, I have a wonderful plan for your life too. And I, I feel like I have every right to tell you what your life needs to look like. And if you don't live up to my plan, I'm going to keep criticizing the way you raise your kids and the way that you dress and what you post online and how you drive and where you went on your last vacation because I'm pretty sure I know how much money you make and how much debt you have. So that's probably not the vacation you should have went on. If I was running your life, this is how I would do it, right? We're justified and how we criticize other people. Now let me, let me show you a very popular Christian truth that uh, if you've been in church uh, for more than 10 minutes, you've probably heard this. It's in the Bible a few different times and it's in there a lot through uh, the way that things are taught. Um, but I want you to notice this and I wanna see what comes after it. Uh, and here's what Galatians 14, 15 says. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest command, love God, love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. Now the apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Galatia that had probably been around less than 25 years and this is becoming an issue. So he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love people, but be careful. Be careful. Because if your words are constantly critical, if you're constantly cutting at people and biting and devouring and always using harsh words, be careful. You're destroying each other. You're destroying each other. Now what if for some of you, when you look in the mirror of your life as pertains to criticism, you, you see that your critical words are actually destroying areas of your life. What if you're actually destroying intimacy in your marriage? What if it's actually driving a wall between you and your kids? What if it's distancing your friends? What if it's keeping you from sharing the goodness of Jesus Christ because people can't see past how nitpicky and critical that you are to see that you actually do care about other people? What if it's holding back your witness? What if the words we use are hurting the people around us? Now, I wanna look at another couple verses real quick and here's a contrasting verse. These are all through the Bible. I love this, especially in Proverbs where you get like one truth and then the mirrored like opposite contrasting view of that, of that truth. Um, not contradicting, contrasting. So they'll say one thing about a subject and then give you the opposite angle. So I wanna look at, let's, Proverbs 12, 18 says, some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. Some people make cutting remarks. Some people cut and hurt and criticize, but other people speak words of wisdom. And these are words that build up and they bring healing. They don't tear down. They raise up. One of my favorite verses in the Bible says that love builds the church. Cutting remarks don't build the church. Dissension, it's what it creates. It doesn't grow the church. Paul wrote it this way in Ephesians 4.29. He writes, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So Paul says, 
Don't let these unhelpful, impure, unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Don't tear other people down. Let only the words that you speak be helpful to build other people up. Now, here's what I hope, here's what I hope you understand as I approach this topic like I do any other topic with, uh, with truth and, and grace and vulnerability. Um, first, you and I have no idea how much criticism can hurt someone's heart and stick with them for years and years. We have no idea. My friends in college have no idea that 10 years later, certain things happen in my life and I still think of a moment of criticism. That, may, that story may be with one of your parents, maybe a father or a mother or a grandparent, where you're doing something, you're living your life, you're just going about your world and you're, and you're doing good, you're doing fine, but you make one little mistake or you're, like, you're building something in your backyard and you miss the nail and you're like, my dad would chew me out for that. Why am I still bad at this? Come on, I'm almost 40. Why can't I hit a nail? Some people just can't hit nails. It's fine, right? But we, we see that and we think back in our life and we hear the criticism. We hear the criticism. Our words have power and they stick with people for years. And on the other side of that, you and I have no idea how a single word of encouragement can build someone up can give them the faith to go on. That they can look back on a moment and you're like, all right, last time I struggled with this, so-and-so said this and that got me through. So I'm just gonna sit on this and I'm gonna get through. Our words have power. See, some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. See, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. James talks about this all the time in controlling your tongue, but only what is helpful for building others up according to the needs and the benefits of those who listen. Our words have the power of life. Our words have the power of death. There is power in our tongues and in our big fat mouths. So I wanna ask you this, and I want you to ask you this. What kind of person do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be as pertains to criticism or encouragement? Let's be introspective on this. Which do you want to be? I'm going to give you two options, two options today to consider. And these are on the back of your bulletin if you're a, a note taker or, a, or a, a blank filler outer person. Which one do you want to be? The first type I'm calling is a fault finder. A fault finder. Now this is quite honestly, and I say this in complete humility, this is quite honestly what most people are. Most people are fault finders because our very sin nature uh, in that we tend to find what's wrong with someone or something or a situation before we find what's right. It's like our natural inclination. Well, that ain't right. I'd do it different than that. See those of you, uh, see see those of you who who are married might might find like you know it's it's easy to find fault in your spouse. 
you fell in love with them, but it's easy to find fault because you're like, you know, you're dating, everything's great, I love you, all, you know, all these, all, you do that little cute thing with your, with your, uh, you know, when, when you're chewing, you make that cute little noise, but then, but then a few years later, you're like, that is so annoying, right? Like it used to be great and cute, but now you sit on, you know, you sit at home and you're like, she doesn't chew right, she doesn't talk right, she doesn't walk right, she doesn't drive right. She doesn't even breathe right. I can't, I can't even sit in the same living room as her. We're finding fault. And then we go to work and we're like, my boss has no idea what he's doing. There's no strategy at this company. He doesn't know how to run a meeting. This is the worst place that I've ever worked. What's the deal? And then we have all of our friends out there, right? And we're like, man, I can't believe she posted that on internet. Why would she put that on the internet? She says she loves Jesus, but I'm pretty sure she loves her outfit more, right? And then we get out our phones and we're like, you know, for those of you who do the social media thing, like you're scrolling through Facebook with your thumb and you're just, you're just looking through and you're like, why'd she put that on there? Why'd he put that on there? Really? He wore that? She wore, really? This is all so vain. Wow, I've never put that on there. Why have I just wasted 10 minutes doing this with my thumb? It's gonna get stuck like this, right? I can't, I can't stop. I don't, I don't even know why I'm looking at this, but I'm, everything I see, I'm just criticizing it. We're finding fault in everything we see, but whatever it is, it's so easy to find fault. Now, if you're a fault finder, let me say this gently. Let me say this gently and with grace. Um, to be a fault finder is to be like the Pharisees, because that's exactly what they did. But it gets worse, though. It gets worse, okay? Sit back, hold still. It gets worse. Fault finders are actually not just like Pharisees. Fault finders are like the devil, because he's the deceiver. He's the devourer. He's the prince of darkness. He's the father of lies. Revelation 12 calls him the accuser, He's the one who accuses people day in and day out. He points out faults. That's how he accuses them. He finds faults and he points it out to them. And that's what the Pharisees do. That's what the devil does. And the reality is that whenever we are fault finders, that's uh, what we're doing. And why do we do it? Why do we do it? Why do we find fault so often? See, I think a lot of times it's because we're full of pride. We know, we think that we know what's best. But sometimes we need pointed out that, you know, that we shouldn't, that, you know, that we're finding fault. Like I got corrected one time for my dad. I did one year, of, uh, one, one Christmas season, I did UPS Christmas help. So I rode around in the truck uh, for a few weeks to help them get through a heavy package season. And, and, and I found out when I worked there, I was like, you know, um, they, they know everything that happens. I don't know if you guys have ever worked for UPS or know anything about UPS, but it's like they GPS everything. They know everywhere that truck is, everything that driver's doing. They know if he's idling or if he's driving or if he's on brake, how far he is from the front door. If they know if he drove down a driveway that he's not allowed to drive down, they know everything. And then they even send people out to kind of follow trucks around sometimes and make sure that they know that they're doing their job. And, and that kind of surprised me that they covered it so tight. And I remember I said to my dad one day, who's a small business owner himself, and I said, I said, that is no way to run a company. And he looked at me and he's like, 
go build a company the size of UPS and I'll care what you say about how UPS does business, right? And it, it kind of set me in that moment. It's like, well, I'm just finding fault in something that I don't really know that much about. But when, when we find fault in everything, it's expressing our kind of our insecurities and we're criticizing others' people or situations because we kind of find weakness in ourselves, in them. Uh, the third reason I give you the reason why I think that we are fault finders is um, we oftentimes we criticize from a distance things that we don't know anything about. Just like running UPS. I don't know that much about running UPS. I've never done anything like that, but um, I can criticize it. Now, I'll give you an example. When I was a, when I was a, a younger kid, when I was probably uh, junior high-ish, right around that age, um, I remember uh, when relatives would come and they'd have little kids to family events and stuff, I would, I would say little comments every now and again when the kids were bad, right? I would say something to my, to my mom, be like, you know, why, why do they let their kid do that? Why? Why? Why, why don't they have more control? Why is this happening? And my mom, I remember one day, she's, she must have got an earful of it because she looks right at me and she's like, Guy, I hope your kids are perfect. Because you have no idea what it's like to raise kids. Now, see, I could, I could criticize parents all the time for how they discipline their two-year-olds in the grocery store, I worked at a grocery store in high school, and I could criticize parents all day if I wanted to for how their kids act in the grocery store. And the reason I could do that is because I had never had a two-year-old in a grocery store. I had no idea what to do. But once you do have little kids and in a grocery store, and my kid just turned two on Friday, but his, he thinks his birthday's today, so if you see him, say happy birthday, right? So please... <laughs> Um, but whenever you do have kids in the grocery store and they start acting like this, you realize you can't negotiate with terrorists. You just, it is, it is what it's going to be, right? And at some point you're in the grocery store and you just say, okay, I surrender, right? Like, I know this is bad parenting, but here's the candy, you know? Just en enjoy yourself. I, I absolutely give up. If you stay really close to me, I got a bag of M&Ms. You're going to get one every two minutes <laughs> if you stay right here at my side. That, true story. That worked in JCPenney's. See, when we criticize others, sometimes we think that it makes us look smart or funny or better. But the truth is it makes us look insecure and mean-spirited and discontent. So ask yourself this. Have you ever met a critical person that you wanted to be like? Have you ever met a critical person and walked away from that conversation and be like, that's what I want to be when I grow up? Oh, yeah. Those people see the needs and they point it out. I like that. No, I never have. I've never met a person that acted like that, that I wanted to be like. So let me show you a verse in the Bible that you may want to criticize me for bringing up, but I want you to understand, okay, this is the word of God. This is the word of God. So I need everybody in here, okay, so this is my, this is my disclaimer before I put this on the screen. Okay, especially those of you who are married, men, and brought your spouse with you, 
especially you guys, okay, when this screen pops up on the screen, I need you to sit still. I need you to look straight forward, okay? No elbows, keep them in. You might want to put your palms down, okay? I need you to keep your, keep your, your breathing at a steady pace, okay? No head nods. And don't you dare say amen or you're going to have a bad day, <laughs> all right? Maintain where you're at and just let the word of God do what the word of God does and let it be what it will be, okay? All right? Everybody ready? <sighs> Deep breath. Nobody sees anything. No one thinks anything. Proverbs 12, 21, 19 says, it is better to live alone in the desert than with a quarrelsome, complaining wife. <laughs> May God bless the reading of his word. <laughs> Amen. Now, there's not a verse uh, uh, about men in the Bible that turns this around, but if I could add a verse to the Bible... It may be something along these lines. It is better to live alone in the desert with a husband who, than, than with a husband who constantly picks you apart for not looking like the magazine. I think God would be okay with us turning this one around because this goes both ways. I've never met a critical person I wanted to be like, be around, or live with. It is so important. So I want you to ask yourself, those of you who are like me and have battled with a very critical spirit that's so difficult to see in the mirror because we justify what we do because we actually feel like we have the right to pick other people apart because we think that we're lifting up, that we think that we're creating constructive criticism. But that same spouse that you may be picking apart is the same spouse you fell in love with, that same spouse that may or may not be, but may be a child of God. And we have to see them as who they are. Do you want to be a fault finder? Or I'm gonna give you option number two for your fill out. Or do you wanna be option number two, what I am calling a hope dealer? Now this is important, okay. I said hope dealer, all right? You with me on that? That's an H, okay? I, I, want, I would encourage you to be a hope dealer, all right? Don't stutter, it's hope dealer, all right? Hope dealer, I wanna be a hope dealer. Do you wanna be a fault finder or a hope dealer, all right? Let's keep this, let's keep this PG at church, right? I listen to the hope flowing through the believers. This is what the scripture says, Romans 15, 13 says, Paul writes, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul was, a, a, he was a chief hope dealer. He, anytime that he would speak or write, you can read it all through his letters in the New Testament. He wasn't going to tear people down. He wasn't, he wasn't going to just criticize for the sake of criticizing. If, if, he was, if he talked hard at people, it was for righteousness sake. It was so that they could be more Christ-like in their walk with the Lord, in the life that they were living, in the practical, okay, I'm not just reading the Bible and going home and doing nothing. I'm reading the Bible and applying it to my life because these were written to real people. And he wasn't criticized just to criticize because he knew right. No, he was building people up. He wasn't letting this unwholesome talk come out of his mouth. 
but only that was helpful and building up life into other people. Paul was a supreme hope dealer. He was a hope boss, if you've ever seen one, right? He was the top. Now, in fact, if you just read some of his writings, you'll hear words of hope. So much hope. Now, here are some high points from Romans chapter 8. Listen to these words of hope. The very first 8.1 says, Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. So if you saved, you got hope. You ain't going to be condemned anymore for your sin because you've been washed clean by the blood of Christ, so it's time to get dunked. The Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness. The Holy Spirit helps you when you're weak. That's hope. Jesus is making intercessions for you at the right hand of God the Father right now. Right now. That's hope. You are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. That's hope. Neither life, nor death, nor demons, nor angels, nor powers of the present, the future, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is hope. I feel full of hope. Do you want to be a fault finder or a hope dealer? The Pharisees were fault finders. The devil is a fault finder and wants us to become fault finders. But Jesus is full of hope. I love the metaphors of Jesus that in his teachings, he, he teaches that he is, he is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the good shepherd. He is the door. He is the living vine. He is the gate. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is all of your sufficiencies. But let me tell you who else he is. First Timothy calls Jesus our hope. Titus calls Jesus our blessed hope. And 1 Peter calls Jesus our living hope. So when someone would sin while Jesus was walking around, the Pharisees would point out that sin and they would accuse. But Jesus would come and he would call it sin. He's like, yeah, that, that does go against God's perfect standard. But then he would offer hope so that they could walk away from the bondage of sin. There was a woman caught in adultery during Jesus' day, and the Pharisees said, let's stone her. Now, the Pharisees had every right to stone her. It was the law. She had broken the law, and, and, and they had every right to put her to death, and that was their plan. But Jesus was there, and Jesus knelt down at the sand, and he started to write something. And scripture doesn't tell us what they were writing, but most scholars agree that they were probably writing maybe like the sins of the Pharisees, of the men that were there, because one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they walked away. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do in that moment? He knelt down in the sand to this woman who was broken and full of shame, and he said to her, sweetheart, where are your fault finders? Where are your accusers? Where'd they go? Where are those who are trying to condemn you? She looked up and she said, they're gone. Every single one of them is gone. And Jesus looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you. Don't do this anymore. There's a better way. Go and sin no more. You can find forgiveness and life and real love. 
I offer hope. Who do you want to be? What do you want your story to be about? What do you want to use your mouth for? What do you want to use your tongue for? You want to be a fault finder or a hope dealer? Our enemy is a fault finder. Our savior is the way, the truth, the life. He is our living hope. So who are we? We are the people of God. We are to be the best hope dealers on the planet. We are to be the best encouragers and uplifters. We are to be the people who are pointing other people to Jesus, the one who forgives brokenness and heals all disease. If we're constantly critical and finding fault, we're losing that witness. We're losing that example. It's really easy to be a fault finder. Anybody can do that. But we are followers of Christ who speak words of healing and words of life because you and I have no idea how a single critical word can pierce and kill and destroy. And that there's someone sitting in their house maybe today and a word we said was part of that reason. But you have no idea what a single word of encouragement can do for someone either. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, Dear brothers, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful. Grow to maturity. Encourage each other. Live in harmony and peace, and then the God of love and peace will be with you. Now I want to lead and be a part of a church full of hope dealers. I want to be encouraging. I want to be pointing people and see you guys pointing people inside and outside of the church to our one and only living hope. So when we're using our big fat mouths, let's be hope dealers. Let's be people of hope. Let's be encouraging. Let's be the people that other people want to be around because they feel uplifted. Like I, wanna, like, I wanna sit with you at break time because I just, I just get this good feeling of like, I can do this. Like, I can be the person God called me to be. I can get through another day of work. Let's be the encouraging person. Not the person we avoid at the lunch table because you know you're gonna get torn apart. Let's be hope dealers as we represent Christ. Why don't you pray with me as the worship team comes and, and leads us in a closing song. Father God, I thank you so much for the ways that you guide us and convict us of places where we are not living the standard you call us to be. I thank you for grace when we don't, but I thank you for a call to obedience where we need it. So Lord, may each of us leave our criticisms here Leave our, leave our unhealthy criticisms and complaining here at the altar at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, I want to be a person who dispenses hope. May we be that kind of people in that kind of church by your spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen.